0: Well, uh, morning, everyone. I wanted to just start by reading that verse uh, one more time. Listen, listen to this verse, and the ESV renders it a little bit better, so let me just read. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. It's a beautiful verse, isn't it? And these are uh, such a beautiful passage that we have uh, this morning. So let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you that you're here. Thank you for this passage and for your powerful word. Lord, please speak to us this morning. Help me as I preach and give us ears to hear and soft hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. My name's uh, Matt Morgan. I'm a member of the congregation here. And over these last uh, few weeks, we've been looking, haven't we, at uh, this book of Zephaniah. And we've been seeing that it's all about this day of the Lord. And it's actually the only book in the Bible that that its whole theme is about this day. And we've seen in these first two chapters that the day of the Lord is going to be a day of terrible judgment. Not only on the nations, but also on God's people. And it all culminates in chapter 3, verse 8, just before the passage this morning. Let me just read that. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. God's own people and the nations have turned away from him, and God, rightly jealous, for the people that he made to live with him, is going to sweep them away. Totally terrifying and comprehensive. And it's felt a bit like we've been waiting for this this chapter, hasn't it? Nine to 20. Some of the most beautiful and wonderful words in the whole Bible. The day of the Lord isn't just going to be a day of awful judgment. For some, it's going to be the most amazing day of future hope, restored fortunes. People will be gathered together and they'll know this incredibly intimate love from the Lord. Where the Lord will rather than pour out his indignation on them, he'll quiet them with his love and exult over them with loud singing. They're verses to dwell on, aren't they? To help us gaze at the one who loves us. But it will be tempting Uh, at this point, to leap in to 3 verse 9. My wife Ruth has uh, had a bookmark in Zephaniah chapter 3 because of this verse 17 uh, on the screen, since she was a little girl and uh, she heard this uh, verse in a sermon just mentioned. They're sweet and lovely verses, aren't they, the whole passage? But they're not just platitudes and they're not just nice verses to stick your bookmark in and give you a boost when you're feeling low. They carry incredible power, and all the more so from the context uh, that these, about these chilling verses of God's judgment that we've been hearing about over the last couple of weeks. It's only in the darkness that the light shines more brightly. And we'll see uh, this morning that if you're a Christian, we can know these verses to be an everyday reality for us now and in the future day. That Zephaniah talks about. Just listen again to verse 17. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. With loud singing. (laughs) The holy creator God of the universe exults over you with loud singing. And the question we have uh, before us this morning is do we know that? Do we really know it? Because knowing this kind of love, this uh, intimate relationship, is absolutely transforming. And this book of Zephaniah uh, tells us that it's quite possible to miss it, to miss the love and to miss the transformation that it brings. Our hearts need this love. If there's one thing that the human heart needs, it is this love. But as chapters one and two that we've seen over the last couple of weeks have said, our hearts are easily captivated by other things, things that promise to give us what we need, but instead make us captive. And not only lead to the terrible day of judgment that we've been hearing about, but also cause so many problems. That we face each and every day. Because we can do a great job, can't we, of presenting a rosy picture of our lives on social media or uh, in the Christmas letter. But deep down, each one of us knows that all is not well. Life can be pretty hard. Maybe we suffer from anxiety, worrying about uh, what people think of us or a particular situation or we're angry with how we've been treated, or we struggle with some persistent sin that we know is wrong, but we just keep going back to again and again, even though it's hurting our conscience. Well, this amazing book of Zephaniah, written more than 2,500 years ago, has within it all that we need. So Zephaniah is going to help us to see that because of, it's because of our problem with idolatry that we don't experience this incredible love from God, and why instead we look elsewhere and end up with so many problems. Then we'll see God's solution and how we get it. So our problem with idols, God's solution, and how we get it. So first, our problem with idolatry, and how this stops us experiencing this beautiful love, this all-sufficient love from God as a daily reality. So our problem with idolatry. And as we've seen in recent weeks, uh, God's people uh, in chapters 1 and 2 are described as worshipping idols, aren't they? Worshipping the stars, swearing by Molech and Baal, who are the gods of the surrounding uh, pagan nations. And all the sin of the people that's described in the rest of the book finds its root in their idolatry. It says that they're complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. They say they believe in God, but their actions reveal that they don't really. And the result of all of that is that verse just before our passage this morning, chapter 3, verse 8. I've decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. But why is it that idolatry seems to be the root cause of the way that God's people here have turned away from God? And why does it lead to this very severe judgment from God? What is it about idolatry? Well, for that, we need to go back to the Ten Commandments, uh, which is this episode where God sets out the basis for his relationship with his people. And the very first thing he says is this. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth below, beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. These are the first two commandments. And it's all about worship. We all worship something, whether it's God or something else. And it's this that goes to the root of the problem. God made us for relationship with him. And that actually goes further back than the Ten Commandments, right back to the garden in Genesis, where God walked with the man and the woman in the cool of the day. But then they turned away. Why did they? Well, just like in Zephaniah's time, deep down, they couldn't bear to be completely reliant on him for everything that they needed. They wanted to have some contribution. In eating that fruit to be godlike. it was like a declaration of independence. God was dwelling with them, wasn't he? But they wanted to get on by themselves. And we can see those parallels uh, in the first two chapters of Zephaniah. And in fact, at the beginning of chapter three, where Zephaniah shows that God is dwelling with his people. And yet they don't want to draw near to him. And they don't even want to come back to him uh, when they're corrected. Listen to uh, 3, verse 7. This is God speaking. Of Jerusalem, I thought, surely you will fear me and accept correction. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. They don't accept the correction. And another translation puts it, they're corrupt all the more. Because that's the thing about idols. They never satisfy but they give you enough to keep going back for more. They're hard taskmasters. In the corporate world, uh, it's wise to under-promise and over-deliver. But idols always over-promise, and they never ultimately deliver. And the judgment that this deserves also goes back to the garden. Um, just back, you might remember, in chapter 1 at the beginning, uh, verses 2 and 3, it talks about the judgment being a sweeping away of men and animals, birds of the air, fish of the sea. And as uh, we saw a couple of weeks ago, it's this reversal of the creation story, decreation. Well, that's them. But we don't worship idols, do we? We don't bow down to Baal or, or Molech. And I think there can be a bit of a tendency for us to think that. God's people back then in the ancient world were a little bit more simple. It was a, lot, you know, it was a long time ago. They didn't have what we have now. They didn't have the education or the technology. They were maybe more easily duped than we are. Uh, we don't bow down to statues, at least in the West. We're far too sophisticated, aren't we? But if we look behind the actual idols themselves, we can see that we're doing just the same things And that the problems and fears that we face every day reveal that idolatry is just as prevalent today as it was then. And this is the root of why we don't experience this love that the Lord offers and why we see so many problems around us. The relationship that God designed us for is what we're all looking for deep down. This mutual love and delight that we read about in uh, chapters 3, verses 14 and 15. We'll look at them later, uh, 14 to 17. We'll come back to that in, in a moment. We've rejected it from God, sometimes very clearly and consciously, at other times much more unconsciously and subtly. But our problems reveal that we're actually looking for it in other places and in other things that we worship. We all worship something. It's what we're made to do. And our idol worship is the cause of us missing out on this sweet love of the Lord. To find out what you worship, work out what you fear. They often reveal to us what our idols are. Take anxiety, for example. Why is it that we get anxious about things? For me, I often find that as I'm driving down the A34 uh, to work and I have a big presentation to give, that I begin to feel anxious. Um, I work alongside the boss and her team of, uh, at a big firm, people who will make or break my uh, next job move, and I'm regularly presenting uh, to them. And it's good to care, isn't it, how that presentation is going to go? It's good to prepare well. But when the anxiety comes on, what's going on? Well, over the years, I think God has revealed to me that for me, deep down, i um, quite unconsciously, I need their approval. I need them to think that I'm great. I'm actually worshipping my own reputation in their eyes, or, or even my reputation in my own eyes. Rather than knowing that I'm delighted in, that I have all the approval I need from God, that his verdict on me is already in, I'm looking, uh, looking for that elsewhere. And if we we can dig deep into our anxiety, not always, but often we find that we're overly concerned with what people think of us or our financial security or how how our close relationships are going or whether we're respected. Or take some persistent sin that you just can't shake. You know it's wrong. You feel the pangs on your uh, conscience. But time after time, whatever you do, you just always go back to it. What's going on? Well, it shows that you need that thing, whatever it is, to make you feel like you matter, that you're someone. Whatever it is, you need it to give you meaning or to prove to yourself that you're still in control. And when it's threatened, you find yourself doing things you'd never normally do to protect it. We never say this. But somewhat unconsciously, God's love isn't enough for us. So we go after it elsewhere. The love from being praised at work, or being thought of as a great Christian mum, or dad, or son, or daughter, or for being part of an inner circle in a friendship group, or a great church member. We all have idols because deep down, we don't truly know in our hearts. That he exalts over us with loud singing. The trouble is that these idols never satisfy our desires and our needs. If I'm looking for approvals from others, uh, I'll always be chasing more. And on top of that, when I don't get it, I'll be devastated. If you're worshiping power or control, you'll be—you'll con- always be controlled by someone or something else, and become angry when things don't go the way you want. If you're worshipping beauty, they'll not only decay, but there will always be someone else more beautiful. These idols, just like those in Zephaniah, promise to fulfil, but they don't satisfy. And that just leads us to try harder to worship them. Because the subtle and insidious thing about idols is that most of the time, we don't even realise we've got a problem. Because remember who Zephaniah was written to. It was God's people. I don't know if you remember, but back in chapter 1 in verse 5, which describes their idol worship, they're worshipping the Lord, but he's not enough. They're worshipping other things too. And actually for similar reasons to, to us. Cultural acceptance, to get on in the business world, to gain power and control. What Zephaniah is telling us is that we have a problem that we can't solve. We keep trying to solve it, but we keep looking in the wrong place. We're always looking to how we can fix it. We need to spend some time reflecting on our absolute spiritual bankruptcy. We actually need to dwell a little bit in chapters one and two of Zephaniah to know where we are on our own. Trapped in a spiral of idolatry and far from the one we were built to love and be loved by, and facing devastating judgment. Before we can move on to 3 verse 9, we need to know 3 verse 8. So why don't we know uh, this love? Because we worship idols. Second, what's God's solution? So God's solution. And we've said, haven't we, that this book is about the day of the Lord. Uh, and that's because of the phrases, on that day, or at that time, comes up 22 times in just these three short chapters. And we've spent a lot of time, haven't we, looking at the two-thirds of this book about this devastating judgment that comes from turning away from the Lord and worshipping idols. But the remaining third talks of this day being a day of hope, of restoration, and gathering. The book could quite easily have ended at 3 verse 8 but this isn't the end of the story. It's not the end of our story. And can I say, if you're not a Christian, that it doesn't have to be the end of your story either. Because in Zephaniah, in these verses, at the end of the book, he outlines three beautiful features that can be the solution to our problems today, both our problems that we experience every day and our ultimate problem uh, of the day of judgment. So three features that uh, mark God's solution. First, God will change his people because they can't change themselves. And we're particularly looking there at 9 to 13. Let me read verse 9 again. Then I will purify or change, a different translation, the lips of the peoples. That all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. And just contrast that to um, 3, verse 7, where despite correction, they are all the more eager to act corruptly. God is saying that he has to change his people. That's the only way that they can get out of this cycle of idol worship and sin and rejection of God. He has to change them. And this flies in the face of our cultural narrative of the day, doesn't it? That says, just believe in yourself. Uh, Find the hero inside. It's completely different. God has to change us. They're changed to realize how helpless they are. So much so that all they can and all they need to do is to call out. Look at verse 12. They're changed to be humble and lowly, who simply seek refuge in the name of the Lord. And just look at the results down there in verse 11. They won't be put to shame because of the deeds by which they've rebelled against the Lord. And in verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against them, as Rick uh, mentioned earlier. they rebelled, but the Lord is not counting their sin against them. So first, God will change them because they can't change themselves. Second, God will have an intimate relationship with his people. And this is particularly looking at those verses 14 to 17. Just listen to 17 again. He will quiet you with his love and exalt over you with loud singing. And how do the people respond? In verse 14. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. It's exactly the same, isn't it? God delights in his people so much that he sings loudly over them. And the people delight in their God so much that they rejoice and sing loudly. So why is there all this rejoicing and delighting and singing? In the, in the middle of these two verses is the reason. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. God is dwelling with them as it was designed to be, which means there can be no fear. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? And it's beautiful because it's what we've been made for. Intimate relationship that is described to meet their every need. They're loved by God in a way, they meet, in a way that means they don't need to look for that love anywhere else. It's like in a good marriage. The one person you love the most whose opinion of you matters the most to you is the same person who actually loves you the most. If the person you admire and think of as an absolute beauty thinks you're brilliant and funny and beautiful, then you feel those things regardless of what other people say. It's because of the relationship you have with them. Their opinion of you changes you. And other people's opinion doesn't matter so much. If we know God's joy and delight in us, his is the only opinion that really matters. So we'll stop living for others' approval because we'll know the approval we have from God. And those words, he will quiet you with his love. It's a picture, isn't it, of a newborn baby who is besides themselves crying, completely helpless, all they, all they can do is just scream out for the milk that they need, completely reliant on their mother to scoop them up and give them exactly what they need, which quiets them down in their arms. In those arms, the child has all they need. So God's solution is that he'll change his people because they can't change themselves, and that God will have an intimate relationship with them that they were designed for. And third, God will gather his people for a future of restored fortunes. And that's mainly looking at 18 to 20. God's gathering of people is actually a theme throughout the whole of Zephaniah. Just look down at uh, 3 verse 8 again. There, he gathers the nations in order to pour out his indignation on them. But in 18 to 20, he's gathering his people for quite a different reason. Just scan down the verses with me. A better translation of uh, of verse 18 is actually, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. These are those that are mourning the fact that the people of God have stopped celebrating festivals like the Passover uh, and they're being reproached because of it. They'll no longer suffer reproach. And in verse 19, he will deal with all who have oppressed them and he'll rescue or save the lame And gather those who have been scattered or the outcast. And in verse 20, he'll give them praise and honour and gather them to bring them home. He'll make them renowned even and restore their fortunes in verse 20. It's complete restoration, isn't it? If the day of the Lord for some is going to be a day of decreation, as we saw in chapter 1, the day of the Lord for others is going to be the day of recreation. This is future hope. The wiping away of every tear and living in a perfect place like we were designed for, just like in the garden. So what's the solution? God is going to change his people because they can't change themselves. He's going to have an intimate relationship with his people. And he's promising a future hope of restored fortunes. But what is this talking about? Well, there's some really clear textual similarities, actually, to the two clearest places in the Old Testament that look forward to the New Covenant, Jeremiah 32 and Ezekiel 11. Let me just read from Ezekiel 11. And just as I read, listen for how the connected themes resonates with what Zephaniah was saying. This is from Ezekiel 11. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered, And I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God just the same picture isn't it as what we have here uh, in Zephaniah. God is gathering his people, he's delighting in doing good to them and he's utterly changing them by giving them a new heart so that they can love him back and just a few weeks ago in uh, in the run up to Easter we saw didn't we Jesus identifying himself as bringing in the new covenant so this is about us We need to be changed by God because we can't change ourselves. We need this intimate and beautiful relationship with God to satisfy all our needs so that we can be free from the idols that promise so much and are so cruel and hard taskmasters. And we need this future and certain hope being put right in total recreation. So let me come back to the question that I asked at the beginning. Do we know this intimate relationship that Zephaniah describes that drives out our every fear? Do we know the assurance of this future hope? We say we worship the Lord, but in reality, we're still striving often to be loved by other things. We're still fearful. We're still seeking the love we were built for in other places, not knowing that we already have it. So how do we get it? We've seen that, though we may not realise it, we worship idols. And we've seen God's solution. So how do we get it? Three things. We've got to know how spiritually bankrupt we are. We've got to know the nature of God's solution. And something else. First, we've got to know how spiritually bankrupt we are. And this really goes back to chapter 3, verse 8 which is in itself a summary verse for everything that has preceded it. Because of our problem with idolatry, we need to know, to really know, that we deserve God's fierce anger. That we deserved, we deserved to be consumed, consumed by the fire of his jealousy. Remember uh, Hosea? We, we are the wayward wife that keeps on going off in adultery to other loves, even though she has access to the most beautiful love in the world. And some of the verses down here that describe the people that God has changed describes them as meek and humble and trust in the name of the Lord, or a better translation is they seek refuge in the name of the Lord. they rebelled, but they know all they can do is call out to the Lord and seek refuge in him. They know they don't deserve God's blessing, so all they can do is come to him with empty hands. It's like the prodigal son, isn't it? He realizes the only thing he can do is to go home with nothing and beg his father to be one of his slaves. But he finds his father running out to greet him with open arms. We need to know how spiritually bankrupt we are. But second, we need to know the nature of God's solution. We need to know that our only hope is for God to change us, that we can't, in fact, save ourselves. That's the nature of uh, the new covenant, isn't it? Uh, Just look at verse 11 again. That will not be put to shame for all the wrongs we've done. Or verse 15. The Lord has taken away our punishment. That while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. That we can only come to the creator and holy God of the universe with nothing in our hands. Nothing that can possibly contribute anything to him loving us. We can only do that if we know what he's like. We can only come to him with nothing if we know that he takes great delight in us, if we know that he quiets us with his love and that he exults over us with loud singing. The more we know the depth of our idolatry and sin, the more beautiful we find God's red-hot and deep love for us. And the more we know his love for us, the more we realise quite how sinful and idolatrous we are. The more we know and feel the weight of Zephaniah 1 and 2, the more beautiful this morning's passage is. And thirdly, something else. We can't quite stop there, Because on our own, we just can't quite meet up, uh, meet the mark of these changed people. That are described. Look at verse 13. They will do no wrong and they speak no lies. And how is it as well that our holy God can not put us to shame for the wrongs that we've done or take away the punishment for our sin? Well, it's a little bit obscure, but these verses actually hint of something that's picked up in the New Testament. Look down at verse 10. It says, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. It's a bit odd, isn't it? What's that about? Well, Cush is shorthand for Egypt uh, at the time. So it's saying that from Egypt, there's going to be an offering from his worshippers. And the prophet Hosea picks up on a similar note, uh, and he says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt... I called my son. Hosea is clearly referring to when God rescued his people from Egypt, way before Hosea and Zephaniah were written. But Zephaniah is talking about the same event in the future tense, which, as you may have guessed, is picked up in Matthew 2. Let me just read a few verses from Matthew 2. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew identifies Jesus as the one who fulfills God's people in every way. He's the son that God calls out of Egypt. He's the worshipper who will bring God an offering from beyond the rivers of Cush, an offering of himself, in our place, on the cross, to pay for our sin and idolatry. Keep Jesus, Jesus in mind as I read um, Zephaniah three, twelve to thirteen. But I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel I will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong, they will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. And listen to the promised Saviour that we, we know uh, written about in Isaiah 53, who the New Testament writers all identify as Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. This is probably the clearest place in the whole Bible that speaks of Jesus' undeserved death on the cross that has taken the day of judgment for us. He took our place. And now if we hide in him, we get his righteousness. And one day we'll be like him in our future hope. And it's no coincidence, as Andrew pointed out earlier, that Zephaniah means protected or hidden in God. Jesus has done it. He has done what we couldn't do. And yet we still strive for love elsewhere. He's done it all, but we're still looking for the love that we need from everywhere but the one person who can satisfy us. We worship other things because we're still trying to fill up on what we need. Love, approval, meaning, satisfaction, control. So what are we to do? We'll just look one more time at the beautiful verse 17. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That word quiet in the Hebrew means rest. So this verse says, he will rest you by his love. Let me read the words of uh, of Jesus in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For, for I am humble and, gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So, how do we get God's solution to our idolatry problem? How does He change us because we can't change ourselves? How do we know, really know, this intimate love from God that He exalts over us with singing? How do we get this future hope of recreation? Well, the only thing we can. As an old and almost forgotten hymn says, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Go to Jesus, gaze on him, See how much he loved you on the cross because there is no other way to meet God's justice and bring him back to him. Dwell on how much he loves you. Run to him and rest in his finished work. It is all we need. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Let's pray. Father, thank you that because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us, because he has taken the day of judgment for us, we can know the beauty of knowing you, of this intimate relationship with you. Lord, help us to think out the gospel, reveal our idols to us and help us by the Holy Spirit to run to him. And please give us a sense and a taste of this intimate love you have for us. Change us, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen.